Well, we're coming to the end of uh, Exodus for the time being. We're going to come back in the fall, Lord willing, and pick up at Exodus 15:22 as we find the children of Israel on the other side. Um, but this is a good place for us to stop for the time being before we enter into some summer, different summer studies and things like that. Before I pray and we get into the study this morning, um, just a couple of announcements. First of all, you may have noticed out in the lobby that we have the CareNet um, baby bottle campaign starting today. Um, they're, they're right on your right as you walk out the double doors. Um, a couple of times, well, really annually, we participate in the CareNet baby bottle fundraiser which the idea is to take, the, take a bottle home with your family and fill it with change and cash over the next several weeks, through, really throughout the month of June, and then we're going to bring those back on the last Lord's Day of June, which I think is June 30th, but whatever the last Lord's Day in June is, and we'll collect those and send that money off to CareNet. For those of you who are not familiar, CareNet is a nonprofit Christian crisis pregnancy center in town that offers free services to those who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies, or with concerns of an STD or an STI. And their mission is to extend Christian compassion and truth by promoting the sanctity of life and sexual purity. They do all sorts of services for our community, including pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, prenatal and parenting education, material assistance, STD and STI testing and treatment, and post-abortive care. They're also in our in our middle and high schools, which even our own sister Elizabeth Byrne served in for a time. And so we've got, we've got a number of different ministries that we have attached to. We've had members serve in counseling capacities. We've had ministers serve in volunteer capacities. So CareNet's a ministry we believe in and we want to support. So take a bottle, if you don't mind, and fill it up over the next month with spare change and return it. And uh, the fundraiser is really important to the center, and we'll be sharing more about their work over the next several weeks. A second quick announcement concerns Fish Street VBS. Some of you probably saw the email that Justin and Rebecca sent out yesterday, but in case you didn't, at 4 p.m. in the Klein's yard today, there's going to be setting up the, of the fence, the security fence that goes around the property, and this also signals to the community that the VBS is getting ready to start in the next week or so. So if we can have a few men show up at their house, weather permitting, 4 p.m. this afternoon to help get that security fence set up, that will be a great blessing. Also, ladies and kids can be there as well to make posters and advertisements for the, for the neighborhood. Secondly, there are some financial needs. Those of you who know, we do budget for the 5th Street VBS each year, but all that money has been used to purchase T-shirts for the community. And so if you have a desire to help with some additional financial needs related to supplies, prizes, inflatables, fireworks, wrappers, bikes, all kinds of stuff, we will, I'm, I, I assure you that the Kleins and the team there will put every penny to good use, and we'll use all we can to bless the community through the VBS this coming uh, June 5th through the 8th. So if you can help with that in any financial way, see the Kleins, see Abby, see Jana, and you can give that way um, if you are so inclined. Let's pray together, and then we'll get into Exodus 15. Father, we thank you so much for this song this morning that we get to reflect on. We've sung many songs that capture the essence of what the children of Israel sung here on the, on the shores of the Red Sea as they beheld your salvation. But we pray this morning that you would touch our hearts in such a way that we would be gripped afresh with the calling as your people to be a singing people, a people who sing the salvation of our God, because this is something we'll do all of our days and for all of eternity as we worship the Lamb who was slain, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Well, where else in America do you find a group of people from diverse backgrounds, different histories, different ages, different stages, different stories, all gathering together to sing? I mean, if you've been around the church for a long time, you may no longer realize how strange it is that we come together once a week and spend 20 to 25 minutes just singing about a crucified man who rose. That's a little weird. Sure, people sing outside of church. They sing with their car radio or their iPhone on a run or the fight song at their favorite sports team's game or even at a concert. But where else in the world do people gather together for the express purpose of lifting their voices in song together? But that's the way it is with God and his people. God saves and his people sing. We have songs by Moses, Miriam, Deborah, Barak, David, Hannah, not to mention the 150 songs that make up the Psalter. And that's the Old Testament alone. And the New Testament literally leads off in song when the Son of God is sent into the world and angels sing for joy and Mary joins in and Zechariah joins in and Simeon joins in and they all sing songs as well. And then in the New Testament, there are hymns to Christ in the Gospel of John, in the book of Romans, in Philippians, in Colossians, in First and Second Timothy, and in Hebrews. There are doxologies that are scattered throughout the Bible. And then the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there are songs in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 11, and chapter 14. What's my point? Saved people sing. That's my point. Saved people sing. And because the Bible is a story of God's salvation, it is littered with songs. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The theme is Save People Sing. The outline is simple. Why we sing, what we sing, and how we sing. That's where we're going. Why we sing, what we sing, and how we sing. Let's first of all spend time talking about why we sing. Why we sing is easily proven from this passage. Well, they're singing. But it's proven mainly by the first word of the first verse of chapter 15. And that word is then. Then, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. What preceded and prompted this then? What preceded and prompted this song? Well, chapter 14. What occurred in chapter 14? God's miraculous salvation of his people through near death at the Red Sea. The Red Sea salvation, God splitting the waters causing his people to walk across on dry land. And then as the Egyptian army came in to try to follow them, God reversing that, dumping the water down on the Egyptian army, drowning them in the midst of the Red Sea. Then they sang. The first thing that happens upon their salvation is singing. Why is that? Because it's reflexive. That's why. They don't have to be told to do this. Why? Because saved people sing. That's why. You don't have to be commanded to do this. They're compelled to do this. 
Hold your finger there in Exodus 15. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Psalm chapter 106 or Psalm 106. Psalm 106 paints the picture of what's going on here in Exodus 15 in slightly different way, but nevertheless underscores the reflexive nature of singing of the people of God in light of the salvation they have received at the Red Sea. Psalm 106, beginning at verse 9. He, talking about God, rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. That's what they did. What what did they do? They saw the salvation of God. They believed God's word and they sang God's praise. Now, for sure, brothers and sisters, those of you who know your New Testaments well, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, commands us to sing. We are commanded as the New Testament church, as the people of God, to sing God's praise. But more than that, we don't simply sing because we're commanded to sing. We sing because we're compelled to sing. We don't sing so much because we have to. We sing because we love to. That's why we sing. We love to sing to the God who has saved us. Tony Morita, a professor and pastor in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina, says the following, Every believer should sing to the Lord, not because they have a good voice, but because of what God has done for them. Praise is the natural response from those who have experienced God's grace. The Exodus was the most important event in the Bible until the cross. And what did they do after it? Sing. That is what saved people do. End quote. So worship is a response to a free salvation. Think about this. It is impossible to conceive of biblical Christianity without songs of praise. Christianity is a singing religion. Why is it a singing religion? Why do we sing? Because of free grace. That's why we sing. We sing because we have received an undeserved salvation. That's why we sing. Think about it. If we attained our salvation by doing good works and we're being a good person and we're rewarded for our good deeds, if we had earned it, there'd be no reason to sing. You don't sing when you get your paycheck. Now, some of you might sing a little bit, but it's not because you're being rational. It's just because you're glad you got some money. But you earn the money. We don't sing generally when we get a paycheck because we earned it. We work for it. But if there's a big, gracious, unearned bonus in that check, we might do a little two-step, clap our hands, sing, rejoice, shout out loud, yes! Because you didn't earn that. A gracious, free, unearned provision of salvation compels people to sing. We, say, we sing because we can't sing our, save ourselves. That's why we sing. 
We sing because we can't earn our salvation. Jesus did. We, we, say, we sing not because we've obeyed perfectly, but because Jesus has obeyed perfectly for us. We sing not because we can atone for our sins, although we can in hell, but nevertheless not because we can pay them off sufficiently to go to heaven, but because Christ has paid for our sins and atoned for them and purchased eternal life for us. We sing because he rose for our justification. This is the reason we sing. God's love for us inspires our response of love for him and calls forth songs of joy from our lips. Our motivation to sing comes not so much from ourselves, but the one who died and was raised for us. It, listen, brothers and sisters, you're, you're being compelled to sing should come from nothing more than the fact that Christ died for you. That's your compel, compelling to sing. It's not the songs you like. It's not the comfort level you feel. It's not the musical taste or preferences you have. It's the truth about the gospel that you get to herald to, to, in God's, in, to God's people for God's praise in the assembly. It is driven by a heartfelt desire to convey the gospel to those around us who already know it and need to be refreshed and renewed by it to glorify God and to communicate it to those who don't yet know but who might be drawn to Christ through seeing and hearing people who clearly mean it because of the way they sing about it. We need to sing as though the gospel is true. When people look at you sing, it should, they should marvel at the gloriousness of the gospel. That's the point. We praise what we love. End of story. We praise what we love. Bob Coughlin says, Worship isn't primarily about music, techniques, songs, or methodologies. It's about our hearts. It's about what and who we love more than anything. If we hate singing with the people of God, you'll hate heaven. You'll hate heaven. Because heaven, while it's not exclusively the singing of the people of God, it includes a lot of that. Because we delight to praise what we love. C.S. Lewis said, we delight to praise what we love because the praising of it completes the enjoyment of it. We, can't, we have to praise because it's the only fitting way for our hearts to truly grasp and express our love for God. And so that's why we sing. We don't sing because God is up in heaven snarling down at us and saying, give me some praise. I need it. I need it. Stroke my ego. That's the way C.S. Lewis, again, quoting him as an unbeliever, thought about it. He said when he read the Psalms and he heard all these calls to praise the Lord, he said it sounded like God was an old woman begging for compliments. But that's not our God. That's not the God we've seen pictured in the book of Exodus. We see a God who has entered into the suffering of his people, who has cared for them, who has delivered them out of oppression and bondage and freed them into a glorious inheritance that was of their, of, that they, to which they contributed nothing to. They stood still on the edge of the Red Sea and they beheld the salvation of God. And the only appropriate response to that was song. That's why we sing, brothers. We sing because of the gospel. We sing because of a free salvation that the Red Sea pictures for us. A, 
a gospel that Christ has died, that Christ has lived, that Christ has risen from the dead so that all who trust in him will have their sins forgiven, will have their record of debt expunged, and will receive eternal life, all on the basis of what another person has done. This is why we sing. This is why we must sing. Point number two, what we sing. That's why we sing. Now let's talk about what we sing. Well, we're going to look in some general ways at Exodus 15. We don't have the time to go verse by verse through all 18 verses of this song. But I do want to give you some general, the general idea of what the song is about and what it's trying to communicate. In verses 1 through 12 and in verses 19 through 21, both of those sets of verses look back to the events surrounding Israel's liberation from the oppression of the Egyptians. They rehearse the gospel. Because the Exodus is the Old, Old Testament version of the gospel. It's the, it's the picture of God's redemption. And what we see here is them looking back on what God has done and praising him for it. But also, verses 13 through 18 look forward and anticipate the pilgrimage through the wilderness and God's faithfulness to continue to lead his people whom he has delivered. So worship kind of looks in two directions. It looks back at what God has done and it looks forward to what God will do. And that immensely shapes the content of what we sing, does it not? The content of what we sing in our songs together as a gathered church should be looking back to what God has done, namely in the person and work of Christ, and celebrating that, and also looking forward to what he is yet to do when he sends Christ back to make all things new. And faithfulness is a key, key refrain that goes all throughout the songs of the people of God. This is why God's people, ever since the song Great Is Thy Faithfulness has been written, has lo have loved to sing songs like that because his faithfulness is a hallmark of his activity among his people and is a key theme in our worship of him. So just in a general outline form, we see in the first five verses of Exodus 15 a personal praise to God for his power displayed in the defeat of Pharaoh's army. The people of Israel are taking upon their lips a personal praise of God. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed glory. He is my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. I will praise him. I will exalt him. Why? Verse 3, because he's a man of war. He's a warrior who has defended us and fought for us where we could not fight for ourselves, and he's defeated our enemies. And then in verses 6 through 10, God's people sing. This is this is unique, but it's, it's interesting. God's people sing about the pride of God's enemies, and they mock them in their songs. They mock the pride of God's enemies, and, God's, and they rejoice in God's power directed toward them in their defeat. And then in verses 11 through 15, there is general praise to God as the one who is greater than all other gods, who is awesome in glory, who's a worker of miracles, who has performed this great miracle by the Red Sea. And then in verses 16 through 18, there's this declaration of trust in God that he will, in fact, bring his people into the promised land. And it's, it begin, they begin to rehearse the reaction of the surrounding nations concerning this activity, that they are trembling, that they are in fear, because this is the God who is with the people of Israel and will continue to be with them. We learn a lot about what we're supposed to sing from this song. A lot. Notice what they are basically doing. 
They are basically telling a story. They are basically recounting a narrative. I want you to notice that about our songs. How often do the songs we sing, are they telling a story? Are they recounting a narrative? Let me tell you this. Think about In Christ Alone for a moment. Very popular modern worship song. So In Christ Alone starts with the person of who Jesus is. And then it moves into his death. And then it moves into his resurrection. And then it moves into new life in him. There's a story being told there. And that's why it grips your heart. That's why you can't hardly get through a verse about the resurrection without shouting or clapping or singing loudly or throwing your hands in the air because you're rehearsing the story and narrative of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are formed and shaped by story, and it's intended to be that way. Not only should we be singing narrative, but we also should be singing the works of God. That is the content of this song. It's all about what God has done. We don't sing about what we do, who we are. We sing about who God is and what he does. Songs are portable theology. You are learning and remembering songs because they are designed to capture, in essence, a portable theology for you to carry with you throughout your life, throughout your week, throughout your days. And this great song in Exodus 15 is all about God. It's all about what God has done. It's all about glorifying God for what he's done. The name for God occurs 11 times in the 18 verses and once more in Miriam's refrain at the end. God occurs twice and the pronouns he, him, his, you, and your, all referring to God, occur 25 times more. This is a God-saturated God-centered song, there's not a word about Moses anywhere. And that's the way worship is supposed to be. It's all about God. Of course, there is a place for announcing in worship, as part of our worship, our love for God and recounting our experiences. That's what they do in the first five verses. So it's, I'm not saying there's no place for I, me's, minds in worship. Of course there is. We see it all over the Psalms. We see it here in Exodus 15. I, I, I. But what's that I about? It's about personalizing him. That's what it's about. It's about that God, he's mine. It's not so much about me and God. It's about that God who is mine. The emphasis of our songs, of our hymns, of our spiritual songs is on the declaration of God's excellencies. This song is virtually a primer on the attributes of God. It teaches you so much about who God is. It teaches you that God is personal. It teaches you that God is a warrior. It teaches you that God is powerful. It teaches you that God is of supreme value. It teaches you that he is unique among all other self, self, self-sufficient so-called gods. And it teaches you that God is loving, that he's a redeemer, that he saves. These are the themes, these are the attributes that are to characterize what we sing. And these are the things, brothers and sisters, that we are to be concerned about in our worship. How much of God is in that song? 
Not how's that song played, how's that song accompanying, how's that song fit me, but what is the content of that song? That's always the first and most important issue. The most important issue is what we sing. And this is what the people of Israel model for us. They are singing the glory of who God is and what God has done. Point number three, we'll spend most of our time here. So we've seen why we sing, because we're compelled to as a result of salvation. We've seen what we sing, namely the narrative of God's salvation in song and praising him for his attributes and who he is. But let's conclude the sermon. Don't hear conclude as in next five minutes. Hear conclude as in the next 15 minutes. How we sing. We're going to look at three aspects of how we sing that we learn from this song in Exodus 15. How we sing to God with one another for a watching world. To God with one another for a watching world. That's how we sing. Let's first of all think about how we sing to God. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. I want you to notice something about this song. In this song, we have the people of God singing both to God and about God in God's presence. See, sometimes we can, we can think that worship is one or the other of those. Well, we're either singing about God or we're singing to God. Both are appropriate and both are needed. God wants us to both sing directly to him and God wants us to sing about him in, his, in the presence of one another. That glorifies him. and It's like, it's like uh, us as, as parents. When we're, when we're parents, we, we love to have our children uh, compliment us directly. And yet we also love to hear our children brag on us. Or let's reverse it, because that's probably not going to happen, right? Let's reverse it, make parents and children. Okay, so parents, children love to hear their parents compliment them and affirm them directly, but they also love to hear their parents brag on them to other people. And so it is with God. It's a very inadequate and a poor illustration. But nevertheless, it captures something of what inclines the heart of God in our worship. He loves to be both praised directly and praised, talked about in the midst of the assembly. So, that is an appropriate form of gossip. God loves to be gossiped about the way he really is among the people of God. So, to God, let's, look at, let's, let's see a couple of examples of this in the text. Look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. They're singing to God right there, right? You, you, you did this. We see it again in verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty. So they're singing directly to God. They sing again directly to God in verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. But we also see the people of God singing about God. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. 
and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The people of Israel don't say, Pharaoh's officers and his hosts you cast into the sea. They're not talking directly to God. They're talking to one another. They're talking to one another about what God has done. We see it again in verse 5. They, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Then again in verse 9, they're singing about God. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So they're singing about, they're singing in the presence of one another about what God's enemies said they're going to do to the people of Israel. You see what they're doing? They're weaving in lots of elements here in this song. Here's what worship leader Mike Cosper says regarding this dichotomy between singing about God and to God. He says, quote, many a young worship leader has commented, we shouldn't sing songs about God. We should only sing songs to God. Similarly, some may say, all these songs that talk about us, they're man-centered, and worship should be God-centered. Let's not sing about us. Let's only sing to God. Well, that sounds very pious until you realize how many of the psalms are singing about and to Israel. Several New Testament passages thought to be early hymns of the church are the same way. They're declarative and confessional rather than directly addressing God, end quote. Songs can be and should be declarative and confessional, not merely personal love letters to God. It's a both and. It's not an either or. And we notice also that this song is accompanied by an engaged assembly that is singing it together with physical engagement, responsiveness, and musical accompaniment. So all those things are very appropriate in worship. Physical engagement and musical accompaniment are appropriate. It's not just the songs coming out of the mouths of God's people. Of course, that's the main thing. That's the chief thing. That's the one thing that's got to be there is the people of God singing. That is the one thing that's there. Everything else can be there in, in, in different proportions, but the singing has got to be. You've got to be raising your voice in praise of the God who is about him and to him. Secondly, we don't just sing to God. We sing with one another. We sing with one another, and we could even say we sing to one another. Look at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. It wasn't just the worship leader Moses putting on his little concert. No, he was leading so that the people would be engaged. And that's what we do as well. All of our worship team, every week, they're not putting a show on for us. They are engaging us in musical accompaniment to draw with, with truth from the scriptures to engage our hearts in song collectively as the assembly and church of God. We also see in verses 19 and through 21, Miriam doing the same thing. In verse 20, we read, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord. So she's calling them as a leader to sing to God. Not just listen to her, but sing out God's salvation. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. What's my point? Worship in the church, by that I mean sung worship, because we're worshiping now too. Worship doesn't stop when the songs stop. We worship through reading, we worship through praying, we worship through singing, we worship through hearing. 
All that is true. Preaching is as much worship as singing is. It's just all different forms of worship. But when I talk about worship now, I'm talking about sung worship, singing worship. Worship is not some individualistic quiet time that we're all having together in the church. When we gather together, this is not you and Jesus with a bunch of other people. This is us together singing the praise of God. Nor is worship mood music before the sermon. Like it just kind of sets things up, you know, just to, for the preacher or whatever. No, it's not that. Worship is essential for the people of God as we sing and recount his deeds together and to one another, to remind one another. The point is, is as we sing, we are not only attributing worth to God, praise to God, but we're also encouraging each other. Because I don't know about you, but I come into church oftentimes discouraged. And discouragement should not be a reason to keep you from church. We come in discouraged, many of us, every single Sunday. And what lifts us and what encourages us is that when we can't sing and when we struggle to sing, we hear our brothers and sisters around us singing the praises of God. And it encourages our own hearts to keep trusting him. There's two kinds of not being able to sing. There's the kind of singing, there's the weight where you, you don't feel like you can sing because the weight of the world and the difficulties and the challenges of your life are so overwhelming you find it difficult to sing. That's fine. We're all there from time to time. But there's no excuse for not being willing to sing. What has God not done for you enough to not loose your tongue for his praise? You say, well, I can't sing. My voice sounds terrible. That's not an issue. That's why the Bible says make a joyful noise to the Lord, not a good noise. doesn't have to be good. I didn't say you had to be able to sing well. That doesn't matter to God at all. God is not saying, uh, I, I appreciate that sister, that brother, but can we get some auto-tune angels? Can we, can we auto-tune that? Because it's terrible. No. The most off-key person with the most Christ-filled heart brings so much joy to the heart of the Father, he can barely contain it. He loves to hear his pitiful children sing to him. His weak, pitiful, off-key, struggling kids. Those are the ones he wants to hear from the most. Not who can belt out operatic solos to the glory of God, although that's wonderful too. And that's a gift from the Lord. And people who can do that, belt it out. The point is, is that worship begins and proceeds from the heart, not the lips. Don't you love to hear your little kids sing? Your children, your grandchildren. We love that, don't we? Even though they're all over the place in terms of pitch and they're fumbling the words and we just are hoping that they get them right. And if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in Heaven know how to give such a response? Of course, our Heavenly Father cares whether and what we sing. He does not mind how well we sing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, 
stress this reality. As you come to him, a living stone, that is Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the church. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus. He's alive. He's, he's raised from the dead. He's a living stone, but he's building something, and he's building a church of living stones to be a spiritual priesthood. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is why we're the church. It's not the only reason we're the church, but it is a chief purpose of us that we come together to sing God's praise, to offer spiritual sacrifices to him, acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. We are a temple in which sacrifices are made, and the sacrifices that are made are praise in part. There's other sacrifices too, but the point here in Peter is the sacrifice of praise is being made. Keith Getty, songwriter, says, When we sing together as a church, we are showing we are a congregation of living stones. Our singing is an audible expression of the bonds we share, testifying to the life that lives within these stones. We are cut from the same elements of faith, united in one Lord, filled by one Spirit, brought into one church to offer our praise to Him. We are being chiseled and refined through our singing, just as we, we are through every aspect of our lives. We are forged together through our singing together. How essential is it that you be here at church to sing praise with your brothers and sisters? It's incredibly essential, because it's the way in which we are forged together as the household of God. We are called to sing together. Worship is not listening to each other mumble quietly as a band performs on stage. We are called to sing to one another. Your focus in worship is never to be yourself and what you think about what's being sung. The focus of your worship is to always be on God and other people. That's the mark of maturity. That's the, that's the angle of worship. We're singing to God, about God, for others. And it's as we do that that, lo and behold, we find ourselves encouraged as well. Because we are doing what we're made to do, self-giving for the benefit of others. So when we gather, we sing to each other. We declare the truths of the gospel to one another. Our presence and our participation is not merely for the sake of our individual relationship with God. It's for the benefit of other people's relationship with God. For our brothers and sisters' sake, our participation in the gathering is a testimony and encouragement to them. When you sing, you're speaking the truth in love to your church around you. And your bold confession of faith may be exactly what someone nearby needs to hear in the midst of their dark hour. Likewise, you may be the one who needs to receive the comfort that comes from the praises of God's people. So I'll wrap up this little point with another quote from Keith Getty who summarizes it in a very pointed way. He says, so when you're called to sing at church, stop drinking your coffee for a moment. Put your phone away and look around and listen to the people standing around you. You're not an only child. This is your family. You are called to serve them by singing with and to them. When we are singing together in this way, we will happily compromise when it comes to the style of the music, the instruments used in the, music, in the worship, and so on. Of course, we'll find particular hymns and arrangements more to our own taste. But there is something bigger and so much more exciting happening here. 
Yet he continues, don't view singing with the church as an opportunity to sing in a way that sounds like the culture you live in or like a past era you wished you lived in. Come to sing to lend your voice to the timeless, boundless sound of the congregational voice singing to the one who is eternally worthy of our praise, end quote. I think he knows something about congregational singing. He's devoting his life to it. So, to God, to or with one another, and finally, for the watching world. We also sing for God's glory among the nations. Notice verses 14 through 18. The peoples have heard, they tremble. What they hear? They heard about what God did at the Red Sea and how they respond. They trembled. Pangs had seized the inhabitants of Philistia. There's the neighboring people. Now the chiefs of, verse 15, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. These are all neighboring nations. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God says, you sin- I've done this salvation, and you've responded this way, not just for you, but so that the nations will know that I'm the Lord, that they will know that I'm the Lord. We see similar strands of this picked up in the New Testament where 1 Corinthians 14 envisions the church having unbelievers in its midst. Every Sunday when we gather, not every one of us is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have some that are not yet disciples of Christ, and we're praying for you and sharing the gospel and hoping that you come to Christ. But just because we're sitting in these seats, we don't assume everybody's a Christian. We know most of us are. We're walking with the Lord. We're members of the church. We're striving to follow him. We're entrusting trusting him for our salvation. But there's unbelievers in our midst. And 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is writing, and he envisions the singing of the people of God in addition to all of aspects of their worship. But resulting in According to 1 Corinthians 14, 25, the secrets of their hearts being disclosed and falling on their face and they'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. So there's this picture of the gathered church engaged in the worship of God and resulting in unbelievers being cut to the heart. Tim Keller says, God wants the world to overhear us worshiping him. Glorious worship is exuberant, never half-hearted. It's attractive, not off-putting. It is awesome, never sentimental. It is brilliant, not careless. We are not to simply communicate the gospel to them. We are to celebrate the gospel before them. See, brothers and sisters, we need to not only communicate the gospel to our lost and unbelieving friends and family, we need to celebrate it in front of them. And the church is one of the ways we are afforded that opportunity when they are in our midst. Singing together bears compelling witness to the truth. It says to those watching and listening that just as we sing the same melody together, so we share the same Savior, the same faith. Not a self-made creed for a solo journey toward nowhere, but a commitment to our one Lord who transforms the life we live together and will bring us home to eternity. Think about Acts 2. Remember the devotion that they, that they had as the early church, what were they devoted to? Well, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, they were devoted to the fellowship. Well, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to the prayers. And they were coming together for the purposes of worship. And what was happening? The Lord was adding to their number. 
the congregational worship of the church in their prayer, in their praise, in their actions, was a dynamic witness. As Paul put it to the church in Colossae, a church should always be wise in the way it acts towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. And you know what? Every opportunity includes every time we stand to sing together on a Sunday morning. It is an opportunity to bear witness to others of the glory of our God. And our kids and our family members and our friends, they need to see us singing our hearts out like we really believe it. Because we do, and he is worthy. Let me conclude with a couple of words of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, we get to sing this song too. You know when we're going to sing it? When we're around the throne of the Lamb, gathered with people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Don't take my word for it. Take John's word for it in Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4. Here's, where we, here's what we read. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. We're going to be standing beside another sea. It's not a red sea, but it's a sea of glass. We won't have tambourines. We're going to have harps. We're going to have something. And notice what we'll sing. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and awesome are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Brothers and sisters, the redeemed of heaven sing this song because they see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his greater work of redemption. So yes, we sing the song of Moses, but brothers and sisters, Exodus 15 has become the song of the Lamb. It's not just the song of Moses anymore. It's the song of Christ. This is what our greater Moses has done in defeating our greater enemies of sin and death. Far worse than a Pharaoh and an Egyptian army. Defeated sin and death for us, rose again on our behalf. And one day, all of God's people in heaven will rise up in triumphant song to the Lord, the warrior who has executed salvation and judgment on our behalf. One day, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the way the waters cover the sea. And all those who walked in rebellion to God will be drowned beneath a deluge of wrath. And all the saints will rise up and bless God. If you find yourself this morning, brother, friend, outside of union with Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what I told you last week. The sea remains parted. You can still come across. The walls are still up. You may come across. But if you refuse, know that while God's wrath is slow, his fury is quick. And there will come a day when you will die. And you will stand before him. And you don't know what day that is. But we're going to sing that song as God's people forever. The song of Moses in Exodus 15 will be a song transformed into the song of the Lamb. Finally, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're here with all our fears, with all our frailty, with all our weakness, with all our sin. What do we do? Where do you go when you don't feel like you can even sing? Where do you go when you realize your singing is wholly inadequate for the worth of the God you're singing to and about? What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You go to Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. You entrust yourself to the one who sings for you. Jesus is always the one in our midst. This is, this is mysterious. But as our elder brother and savior, he's singing the loudest to the ultimate glory of God the Father. Because that's where all the glory is ultimately going to end. Yes, the, fa- the son is, the father is going to give the kingdom to the son and the kingdom is going to give this, the, 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 the son's going to give the kingdom back to the father so that God may be all in all. The, the son of God is not ashamed to call us his brothers in our weak, stammering worship because he is the one who in the midst of of the congregation sings God's praise. And so he's not just our savior in all of the ways that we typically think are gross and immoral and self-righteous. No, he's the one who sings our praise when our praise is so weak. And we say, you know what? What gets me to heaven is not the quality with which I sing the praises of God. What gets me to heaven is the quality with which Jesus sings the praises of God on my behalf. And he is the one who is received by the Father. And all of our imperfect, stammering, weak praise is purified through his blood and made acceptable to God as a sweet offering of incense in his nostrils. So let's do that. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing imperfectly to our perfect Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word of God, for the story that is recounted for us in song in Exodus 15. Thank you that you not only wrote this story down for us so that we would know what you did for your people in those days, but we would be instructed at what you've done in these days, which is far greater than what you did in those days. When 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to this world to do a greater exodus, to lead us out of bondage to sin and death. You are the warrior who has fought for us, Jesus. You have come and slayed the devil and death and our sin on the cross, rising from the dead victoriously. The Lord has triumphed gloriously in the empty tomb, far greater than a horse and a rider buried at the bottom of the sea, thank you that our sins are buried there now. Our sins are at the depths of the sea, not just an Egyptian army. Help us to rise to sing now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we rise to sing, the